The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome to the work of Human Hands on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Justin Soder, and tonight I have the privilege of sharing the air in the company of Father Anthony Chicada, Assistant Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio, and author of the book, Work of Human Hands, which is a study of our show this evening. Father, welcome to the program, and thanks for joining us. Nice to be here. So, Father, as stated in our Zero show back in November, this program is going to be a deeper look into your book and how the theological critique, which is justly given in this book, is a direct cause-effect relationship uh, to what all of us have escaped uh, the Novus Ordo and have had to endure. We're going to allow you to uh, expound on each chapter, maybe bring in some of your, your war stories you know, to liven the discussion, as well as hopefully to provide a starting point for those in our audience who are still in the Novus Ordo religion uh, to see why the theology of the Mass of Paul VI has borne the, fraught, uh, excuse me, has borne the rotten fruits of what they're having to endure on a week-in, week-out basis at their parish. Uh, a significant portion of this show will also be to allow our audience to ask Father specific questions they may have about the differences in the new Mass versus the true Roman Catholic Mass of the Ages to get a better understanding of the origins of this imposter religion, which is been the aim of the modernists to implement since well before the council. I also want to reiterate what we spoke of when we did our Zero show with Father back in November, that we're not going to be reading this book chapter by chapter. We will be using the chapters as a guideline, but you can read the book, and that's hopefully what we're going to inspire you to do. We're going to leave that to you, the listener, and we encourage you to go to sggresources.org and buy yourself a copy of this book. It really is one of those works that really every Catholic should have on his shelf. But all in all, to our Novus Ordo listeners, this, this show is for you. If you're just beginning your journey towards finding the traditional Catholic faith, what we call Roman Catholicism, and are scandalized by what you see at your local parish and are confused about how it happened, why it happened, then this show and this book is, is going to lay it out for you. So, Father, let's go ahead and jump right in with both feet and start discussing Chapter 1 of your work, which is entitled Old Mass versus New Mass, What's the Fuss All About? And we'll begin with the doctrinal motives. Now, at this point, we're going to move forward under the assumption that our listener knows the term New Mass refers to the Novus Ordo Missae or the New Order of Mass, or properly speaking, the 1970 Missale Romanum promulgated by Paul VI. In addition to the book, I'd like the listeners to get a bit of a history lesson. Uh, maybe a walk back in time down memory lane with you, Father, specifically uh, you know, to hear the events that you write about firsthand from you, and we'll tie your thoughts into the content of the chapter. Coming from my side of the microphone here, Father, it's always a pleasure to get to hear someone relate to me what the church was like before the council, because honestly, to imagine the church functioning normally and having the real Catholic faith at a parish down the street, to me, might as well be fiction. I think that illustrates how far gone we are 
that in the mind of the Catholic, I can't imagine the church functioning normally. So let's give you the floor, Father, and tell us the story of the new Mass versus the old Mass. And let's start with some terminology for the listeners. Okay. Could you explain to the listeners what we say when we say the Mass of St. Pius V, or the Tridentine Mass, or the Gregorian Latin Mass? Where did these names for the liturgy originate? And maybe to the person that doesn't know any better, did St. Pius V create a new Mass? Okay, well, <clears throat> that's a two-part question for us here. Um, generally, when you speak about uh, the Old Mass, the Mass of Pius V, the Tridentine Mass, what this uh, refers to is the Mass as it was celebrated before the changes of the Second Vatican Council. And the word Tridentine comes from the word for the city of Trent, where the Council of Trent was held in the 16th century. And the Council of Trent uh, decreed a um, reform of the liturgy in the sense that uh, a suppression of uh, different uh, abuses and uh, that, that had uh, started to creep in in uh, different parts of the church and in effect legislated um, uh, greater uniformity for the celebration of Mass in the West. So Tridentin Missal, or the Missal of Pius V, because in 1570 it was Pope St. Pius V who uh, promulgated the uh, version of uh, the Mass that the Council of Trent had uh, seen as, as desirable. So it's, it's also called the Mass of Pius V. The uh, Missal uh, that was used uh, before the Second Vatican Council was uh, all based on this uh, particular liturgical uh, reform of uh, Pius V. Uh, there were subsequent changes made to the uh, Missal in the way of additional prayers, additional saints' feasts, uh, some clarifications of the rubrics, etc., uh, that remained, in, in substance, it remained the same up until about uh, 19, between 1951 and 1955, when the, there, was, there was a series of, of changes in the Holy Week and in the rubrics of that missile. But substantially, it um, was the same thing uh, until uh, just before the Second Vatican Council. So uh, that's a fairly broad spectrum, but when I refer in my book to the traditional missile, I refer to the 1951 missile because you have to pick some edition that you're going to use for the sake of comparison. So that's a long answer, but the history of the Mass is a long history. It certainly is. Okay, you used another term that I think our, our listeners may need to have clarified. When we say Roman missile, what do we mean? Well, that's the missile that's used in the Roman Rite of uh, the Catholic Church. The, uh, there are other rites in the Catholic Church, Eastern Rites, but uh, the, the Roman Rite is the one that is uh, particular to uh, Catholics in the West, and they uh, historically have had Mass celebrated all the time in Latin, and they have taken the lead all the time from the way that the Mass was celebrated in Rome. Okay. 
Now, you mentioned the missile of 1951, and you also referenced that in the book that is the base missile that you would use uh, as a reference in this work. Why did you choose the 1951 missile? Well, in the 1950s, as we'll see, there were a series of changes that were uh, introduced into the calendar, uh, into uh, Holy Week, into certain other uh, ceremonies of the liturgical year. And these ended up being a trial balloon for the changes that would come after the Second Vatican Council. They weren't, uh, they didn't have as radical an effect but it was as if the people who were proposing the liturgical changes were uh, testing, putting their toes in the water, as it were. Okay. All right. So I guess it's something that I want to sort of hear from your perspective, because everybody has their story. Um, how old were you when you first came to know there was going to be a new Mass? Not, not to the point of where the Mass had been introduced yet, but... You know, you knew changes were coming down the pike, and maybe, uh, uh, maybe you know, you had to endure a dialogue mass, and you know, we'll talk more about that later on down the road. But what was what was the thought process of both you and the average faithful at the time in the pews about a quote-unquote new mass coming down? Well, I think it kind of depended where you started out. Um, in uh, Catholic grade school, we were very well trained. The, um, you know, what the Mass represented, uh, how we were to follow the Mass, how we were to understand the Mass. We were uh, taught in fourth grade how to use a missile. Uh, and it was considered a, um, uh, you know, normal that in fourth grade you would learn how to use a missile. So there was no difficulty understanding what was going on. Uh, the uh, parish that uh, I was at, uh, the parish grade school, the children sang a high mass every day. So we were taught to sing uh, Gregorian chant, all sorts of different Gregorian chants, and uh, we did it very well in different Latin hymns. So we were very much plugged in to what was going on in the liturgy. Uh, when I was in, in fifth grade, that, I think, was the time around which the Second Vatican Council started. I remember we uh, said a prayer every day for the success of the Second Vatican Council. Um, it began, I think, with the words, O Divine Spirit. I can't remember the rest of it, uh, but uh, it was for the, the success of, of the Ecumenical Council, which was viewed as, uh, you know, a, a great event in the lifetime of the Church. A few years later, in uh, seventh grade and the beginning of, of, of eighth grade, we started to hear about different changes uh, in, that would come uh, about in the church, but particularly changes that would come in the mass. We were told that um, some parts of the mass would uh, go into English so people could understand those parts of the uh, Mass better and could participate better. But uh, even as, as a kid at the beginning of eighth grade, when uh, there was really a lot of talk uh, about this with, uh, of, uh, from the sisters, uh, I thought it was very strange because I figured, well, uh, you know, I started out in fourth grade using a missile. I have no problem understanding the Mass. And I sure have no problem singing every day, so I don't see what the problem is. 
Mm-hmm. So from my perspective at that point, it was um, uh, it's, it seemed to me that something unnecessary was going on. And then when uh, it actually happened, uh, I was uh, it was um, Advent of '64. Uh, and uh, I was an altar boy, and I was in the, the middle of eighth grade, and I was planning to go to the seminary. I remember serving the, the first Mass in my parish that was uh, offered with some of the initial changes. The, um, there was a man who um, was a commentator who commented on different parts of the Mass, uh, who read the epistle in... Uh, uh, the epistle in English and told people when to sing hymns and when to stand up and and when to sit down and uh, it struck me as, as very strange that even as a kid that it, it took away something from the holiness and the mystery of the mass that I had been uh, taught about in Catholic grade school now uh, that was my reaction um, Bishop Dolan who is the same age as me, uh, he had the same reaction. He was in Detroit, uh, and uh, thinking of going to the the minor seminary. And uh, Bishop Sanborn uh, was in the freshman year of, um, uh, I think it was Cathedral High School in um, New York, and he had the same reaction that there's something strange or um, different or insufficiently respectful. Uh, insufficiently respectful about it. a lot of people did I had I was just talking with a, a lady today who had taken an interest in the traditional mass she's my age and she had the same reaction hmm. so that's kind of what um, uh, uh, that was kind of the mentality going into the changes and I imagine there are many other people like that and I'm as, speaking as, with, yes. I'm sorry about it no, well, it, ahead, and as the years rolled along, things got worse. <laughs> mm. I remember speaking with with my father about this, who also grew up in the in the traditional right, you know, years ago, long before the council. And he said, you know, he recalled the nuns telling him that, you know, the mass can never change, the mass can never change, the mass will never change. And then one day, the mass changed. And, <laughs> yeah. he, and he said, you know. <laughs> And so we had no problem understanding the Mass. It was very clear what was going on. So to act as if we needed someone to explain it to us, to, to, to show us really how to worship in the Mass, was a real shock. So, so let me ask you this, Father. How old were you when you first saw the new Mass, uh, when it was officially introduced? What, what was your age, and what was your first impression of seeing this new Mass? Well, see what happened. Here, here's what happened, uh, Justin. We, the, you, you had, so in 64, there were... Uh, the, there was the first series of transitional changes for the Mass. Uh, and uh, certain things went into the vernacular. Then um, uh, successively there were other changes that were added. More of it went into the vernacular. And in, uh, I think, 67, 67 or 68, the whole Mass went into English, went into the vernacular. So more and more of the elements of the old Mass were taken away. And then uh, finally... Uh, in uh, 69, Paul VI promulgated, that is to say, gave, uh, uh, presented as a law the, the new Mass in, in uh, March of uh, uh, 69. And then in 1970, 1970 was when we first saw it in the vernacular. So it kind of went over a series of years. 
Now, my reaction, so I was a, um, uh, um, a uh, actually a f- uh, freshman in college when the new mass came in in the vernacular in the United States. But um, <clears throat> dur- during that period of time from, say, 64 onward, I was in the uh, minor seminary and uh, remember, in fact, having uh, fights already, even as a kid, with the different liberals that we had on the faculty in the seminary about you know doctrinal questions and moral questions and and certainly the liturgy you would hear an awful lot about liturgical abuses uh, that people uh, would uh, treat the mass in a very disrespectful way you'd have all sorts of terrible music which I found very repellent uh, they would have communion in the hand even when it was not permitted um, the priest would improvise different prayers. You'd have handshaking uh, for the sign of peace. And we were told that uh, the Pope was going to take care of that uh, by putting out this, this new Mass in 1969. So uh, by that point, my Latin was fairly decent. So um, I, when I first heard it was available in Latin, I drove across town to get a copy of it. And remember reading through it, and I was really appalled because it had um, sort of institutionalized a lot of the things that I had found offensive about the new changes. So that was my reaction to it, and that instead of the Pope solving the problem, uh, he institutionalized the problem. Hmm. Was your reaction similar to uh, the Catholic faithful that you were going to church with at the time, or were they very accepting of these new changes? Did they find it rather alien, or were they willing to accept it and, and, and say, well, you know, we can deal with this, or, you know, we'll give it some time and see how it goes? Well, it was the, the, the reaction, I would say, was all over the place. Uh, mm-hmm. Some people were, especially converts from Protestantism, were revolted by the changes because you would get reactions from people like that who would say that uh, you know I didn't convert to Catholicism to become a Protestant again you know with this this new way of worship so there's a there's reaction against it on the part of some people Uh, uh, others uh, went uh, along with it I would say uh, you know unprotestingly even though they felt a little uh, upset, they figured, well, it's something that's coming from the church. There's the there are the other group, uh, another faction of people thought it didn't go far enough that you should have even crazier things, and you know many members of the clergy uh, believe that uh, as well. But there was a reaction against it. Um, in the uh, beginning, there was a, 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 a in the United States a, a priest named Father Gomar de Paul. He um, initially, I remember, he when the initial changes came uh, into the Tridentan Mass, uh, where different parts started to be taken away in, in maybe 65 or 66, I remember seeing him on television um, denouncing the liturgical changes and the awful translations and saying that it was positively terrible. So the, you did have an... And, um, uh, a number of people felt the same way, and the you saw kind of the beginnings of a traditionalist movement at that point. 
Mm. I, yeah, I also think about uh, you know, certainly most important reference quote here from Cardinal Ottaviani, uh, you know, who wrote to Paul the sixth in '69. If you'll allow me to quote this real quick for our listeners, mm-hmm. uh, Cardinal Ottaviani was the Secretary of the Holy Office, who, by the way, for those who aren't aware, is the chief, the chief doctrinal guardian of the faith of the Roman Catholic Church, and he he wrote. The accompanying critical study of the Novus Ordo Misae, the work of a group of theologians, liturgists, and pastors of souls, shows quite clearly, in spite of its brevity, that if we consider the innovations implied or taken for granted, which may, of course, be evaluated in different ways, the Novus Ordo represents, both as a whole and in its details, a striking departure from the Catholic theology of the Mass, as it was formulated in Session 22 of the Council of Trent. Now that's, I mean, that's a pretty stark reaction, I would say, particularly coming from <laughs> well, someone like Cardinal Latavian. I, I actually yeah. remember reading that. Um, there was a um, uh, conservative Catholic magazine in the United States uh, that was called Triumph, and it had many very good articles in it, uh, and um, that discussed the different abuses, etc. And this was in the 60s, the, the late 60s it started. I remember, uh, I of course subscribed to it, and I remember reading its translation of the Ottaviani intervention and saying, wow, <laughs> you know, the, this, this uh, uh, document really nailed what the problems are with this, this mass of Paul VI. And, you know, it was very encouraging that you had someone like uh, uh, Ottaviani who, in effect, endorsed the ideas so that there, were, there was something wrong with it. And th- those, who, those of us who, uh, at that point, uh, were very uh, uh, suspicious uh, and, uh, of the Vatican II changes and very much opposed to the different abuses were uh, going around. We took a lot of consolation uh, at that. And uh, uh, there was still a coterie of us in, in uh, uh, the seminary who, uh, you know, had difficulties with these changes. And um, the, the, uh, the fact that you had someone like Ottaviani uh, backing up his criticisms of the new mass was very, very powerful. I would imagine that it was. Uh, so, generally speaking, um, you know, as we in America would say, that the you know, the negative reception of the Novus Ordo began right from the get-go. Uh, yes, there, there, there was a, uh, there was a reaction, and eventually it became stronger as a result of the Ottaviani uh, the Ottaviani intervention. Uh, that is, in effect, the the charter of the traditionalist movement that really got. Uh, the resistance galvanized quite a bit, and, and so when did uh, you know once. I'm sorry, me. Father. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Go uh, ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, no, the uh, this 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 really gave uh, um, the traditionalist movement, as it were, an impetus, and it it really got things going, and it, it gathered steam from there. So with this. Um with this traditionalist, what we, what we might call uh, the counter-revolution, did this emerge almost instantly? I mean, was this something that happened almost right off the bat? Well, I, uh, you know, as I say, in 64, 65, there were people who objected, and it was, a, it was a, uh, to the liturgical changes. It was a small group, and eventually it, um, uh, it gathered steam. Okay. But uh, you were still... 
at least in the United States, um, regarded as very much of a, a crank if you objected to the liturgical changes. Uh, mm-hmm. yes. So many people just uh, simply left, became discouraged and, and left. Uh, other people went from uh, church to church reacting, at, reacting to one uh, bad incident in, in, say, their home parish going somewhere else and then encountering, uh, you know, some other abuse and then walking out of that. There, one hears many stories like that. But that was sure. the, the nature of, of this uh, liturgical change. Okay, Father, let's go ahead and move into the 1970s now. Um, in your book, you, you mention the name Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre. Now, uh, some of our listeners, uh, I mean, I would assume many of our listeners are going to obviously know who this is, but uh, Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre was the founder of the Society of St. Pius X. Uh, he was an apostolic delegate to uh, French-speaking Africa. He was a superior general of the Holy Ghost Fathers, uh, and that was all under Pope Pius XII. Now, um, you mentioned the declaration that Archbishop Lefebvre made in 1971, and he made a comment that the Mass of Paul VI was Protestant, modernist, potentially invalid, and many other uh, very, very damning accusations. Now, had anyone spoken like this up to this point to 1971, or was this the first time really that the egg was cracked? I mean, and what was the global reaction to, to Archbishop Lefebvre's statements? Well, I mean, the, uh, you had uh, priests who said this, uh, before um, and uh, in in the United States, uh, I mentioned already this this uh, uh, Father Gomar de Paul, and there were others in the United States. Uh, Lefevre was the highest uh, ranking Catholic cleric to say something like this, but his declaration, at least in the United States, didn't receive that much publicity. It's hard for us to imagine in the internet age how difficult it was to get news and to find out what was going on in other parts of the world. I only heard of the of Archbishop uh, Lefebvre's 71 speech when uh, actually I went to uh, Europe myself and I went to a seminary several years later. So it, it uh, had, I'm sure, a um, uh, it had an effect in Europe, but um, because the, the, the sources of publicity in those days were rather tightly controlled, uh, you didn't, it didn't make as big a splash as a declaration like that would have made later after he became a more prominent public figure. Sure. Um, for those of you who but it certainly, had a, it certainly had an effect. The, the trad movement, the traditionalist movement in, in France, uh, certainly had, uh, since France is smaller, uh, and it had a uh, very strong uh, religious political right wing, um, the declarations of, of, of uh, Archbishop Lefebvre uh, were promoted by other uh, traditionalist priests in France and were quite widely circulated there. So it definitely it had quite an effect there. Um. For those of you who are just joining us, it's the bottom of the hour here, 7.30 Eastern Time, and you're listening to the work of Human Hands on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm joined by Father Anthony Chicada, and today we're, we are speaking of his book, Work of Human Hands. We're starting with Chapter 1, and we're going to work into Chapter 2. 
Um, so far, we've been covering sort of the origins of the traditional movement uh, in, uh, in reaction to the Vatican II changes and the introduction of the Mass of Paul VI. We'd like to remind you that Work of Human Hands is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. If you'd like to use our work, you can contact us at mail at truerestoration.org. So, Father, um, what was... Okay, so, so Archbishop Lefebvre was the first, or as you said, you know, the highest-ranking uh, prelate that would have made such a statement of this. What was the Vatican reaction to Archbishop Lefebvre's statement? Was there well, one? again, because the, 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 um, it's, it was so hard to get uh, information out, it was so hard to get the word out and, and to mm-hmm. publicize things but using the old technology of paper. You know, that seems so strange to say it now. But um, there was uh, initially not much of a reaction, but as the uh, movement uh, gained momentum uh, in Europe, um, uh, eventually the Vatican had to react. But now, there was some rumbling uh, because of the Ottaviani intervention. Paul VI, in fact, mentioned uh, a number of, or, or tried to, gloss over a number of, of problems with the new mass um, in, a, in a speech in uh, November of 1969 in two audiences actually so you had that that was that was uh, pre-Lefebvre but as the movement then the movement uh, gained ground the um, those who wanted the old mass uh, tried to claim that um, it was still permissible to have the new mass without violating the will of Paul VI, uh, and they tried to, you know, uh, make that particular argument, and to uh, uh, even some of them to acquire Vatican approval for retaining uh, the old mass. Well, the uh, answer was, uh, uh, with the exception of, of old priests. Uh, who were incapable, basically, of uh, accommodating themselves to the new right. Um, Rome insisted very much that the new mass was the law, and that and issued several declarations to that effect. And so that um, uh, galvanized traditionalist reaction as well. And uh, parallel with that, Archbishop Lefebvre's uh, work with the Society of St. Pius X and his foundation of that and formation of priests, then uh, that also gave more prominence to the question of the Mass. So throughout the 1970s, um, it became, uh, you know, quite the actually quite the hot uh, topic in, uh, uh, in Europe at least. Uh, there were declarations and condemnations issued back and forth between Lefebvre and Paul VI. Okay. I forgot to mention, Father, that if our listeners would like to call into the show tonight to speak with Father, you're welcome to. Our phone number is 949-272-9417. Again, it's 949-272-9417. Father, I just want to kind of uh, maybe maybe bracket this this reflection of the early traditionalist resistance. We were in the 1970s, and I've... I've kind of bracketed this period, as you have in the book, from 1970 to 84. So what was going on in the traditionalist resistance camps from 70 to 84? And we'll get to why 84 uh, was a very important point or a very important time in just a moment. But So would you say from the 70s to the 80s it was primarily the work of Archbishop Lefebvre who was 
certainly of the worldwide face of this resistance, or were there other groups that were also doing this? I mean, I think about names like Dietrich von Hildebrand. I think about Michael Davies. I think about Dr. William Mara. Uh, uh, certain certain play, or certain um, groups like you know, the Roman Forum, which, which started popping up, which were obviously very very outspoken. What really was the traditional um, the traditional battle um, against the mass and, and Vatican II from, say, we'll just give it 1972 to 1984? Well, it, it wasn't just Archbishop Lefebvre. There were uh, many priests, many older priests throughout the world who um, were diocesan priests or membership, uh, members of religious orders, and they set up mass centers where they celebrated the old mass and there there are a good number of those in the united states or they would say mass you know in a circuit go from city to city to say uh say mass they um would um you know preach against the new mass and against the vatican ii changes there were a number of um uh, newspapers uh, and uh, little periodicals founded in the traditionalist movement that uh, were circulated uh, among those resisting Vatican II. So it was very diffuse, very diffuse throughout the world. Even though Lefebvre was the most prominent, uh, the, this was going on uh, without him a little bit everywhere. So you had uh, uh, that going on from 72 onwards. You had the hot summer of 76 and 77 where Lefebvre got a lot of publicity. And um, I was ordained in 77, and my um, uh, ordination was, you know, like covered by CBS News, and I gave an interview to them, and there was a big stink in the press in the United States and everywhere over it. Uh, you know, denunciations from the uh, Archbishop of Milwaukee when I said, uh, you know, said uh, public mass there uh, back in my hometown. So it, it uh, picked up steam. In um, 79, or 78, JP2 was elected, and it was at that point that um, uh, Archbishop uh, Lefebvre sort of pulled his horns in, as it were, a little bit in terms of... Uh, 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 more open resistance, and he got a uh, uh, started uh, the path of negotiation again with uh, with the Vatican. Um, by in in 1964, uh, what happened is that the uh, Vatican uh, issued uh, what was called the the 1984 indult for the traditional mass. Uh, this document allowed um, groups of, or, or uh, allowed dioceses to authorize uh, the celebration with the permission of the bishop of a uh, mass in the uh, old form in the old rite, and the people who assisted at that mass were supposed to um, declare that they uh, didn't question the legitimacy or the validity of the new mass. So 64 was a uh, 64 was a turning point in terms of recognition from the Vatican. Before that, it was always dropped dead. Um, the uh, the uh, there is no way you were going to uh, get permission because the uh, Mass of Paul VI was considered the Mass of the Roman Rite period, and uh, it was considered uh, uh, unassailable. And you were blown off if you asked for permission otherwise. 
But in, in 84, that changed. So there's a change of line, as it were, with the introduction of these masses called an indult mass. The reason it's called indult is uh, an indult is a uh, legal decree that allows an exception to a general law. So the idea was that, uh, okay, the general law is the mass of Paul VI, and we're going to give you special permission uh, under certain circumstances uh, not to observe that and to have the old mass. Okay, Father. Well, let's let's take just a small little a small little detour here and talk okay. about something that that um, I'm I'm certain that, that anyone who's been in the traditionalist world for any period of time has certainly heard this this Latin phrase, and maybe those who are new have never heard it. But I'd like, and I think this is going to be important to define this because we're going to begin to move into your doctrinal motives and the doctrinal positions in mm -hmm. Chapter One here. Can you? Can you give us a working definition of that Latin phrase, lex arande, lex credendi, and why is it important for Catholics to understand this principle when trying to understand the traditionalist position to the rejection of the new Mass? Well, the, 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 the Latin uh, phrase, the law of praying, is the law of believing. That's uh, one of the renditions of it. The, the idea of it is that there is an intimate relationship between uh, prayer and, and uh, belief, that... Uh, certainly, say the public prayers of the church are based on the uh, creeds and uh, on the, the beliefs of the church. Uh, however, it is also true to say that uh, the manner in which uh, one prays, the lex arandi, the, the, the manner of prayer, uh, also affects people's beliefs. So, for instance, if you have... Uh, the, if you have a um, uh, liturgical change, uh, it is um, to it will affect the way people believe. And the Protestant uh, the Protestants recognized this when they uh, changed the mode of worship during the so-called Reformation. It was to convey uh, convey a new faith. So, for instance, you had communion in the hand, whereas before it was delivered in the tongue. Uh, and the reformers said explicitly this was to um, obliterate the idea of uh, transubstantiation, of the real presence of Christ, of worship of the Blessed Sacrament, and of the sacramental, the special nature of the priesthood, the anointing of his hands, and so on. So that, that was given as an example or that's an example of how changing the law of prayer can also affect the law of believing. And that's, you know, what was done. And you had countries, for instance, like England, um, where Catholics uh, were, in effect, turned into Protestant simple people by the changes in worship. And it, it had a profound effect on their, their view of what they're supposed to believe. So that's Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi. There's an interrelationship. Okay. okay, so so circling back around and getting back on the, the, the 84 indult road here, did mm -hmm. it change anything in terms of availability of the old mass? I mean, and, uh, well, I'll save part two of the question after you answer that. Did it change anything in terms of availability? Well, it depended from diocese to diocese. Some bishops were more uh, liberal, as it were, in allowing it. Generally, they were the uh, bishops who were not... Uh, would not have been 
counted as liberals, I suppose, because liberals generally tend to be the least liberal of people when you go against their line. So, uh, but it gave it uh, publicity and it gave it exposure. So uh, you had uh, um, in different different dioceses people who uh, were uh, afraid to perhaps go to a, a wildcat uh, traditionalist chapel operated by Father Chicada. Uh, when they uh, read that the Archdiocese in Milwaukee was allowing you to go to a traditionalist mass, an old Latin mass at the seminary, this aroused their curiosity, and many people went uh, uh, initially as a result, and it gave it visibility. Okay, uh, and I guess part you know part two of this question is going to be you know I've gone back and I've read the text of that you know I, issued by John Paul II, and I think this is this sort of set the foundation in my view for how uh, the Vatican wanted traditionalists to uh, form their minds around the issue of the old mass, and it talked a lot about preferences and respecting one's sensitivities and things like that. That's the first time that I had heard, or it was the first time that I had read that type of language in the indult, was that it began to frame uh, everything to do with the old mass around a mere preference. And that um, this and that this answer was good enough to solve the traditionalist problem. Was it good enough to solve the traditionalist problem? Well, I mean, it, it, it sure didn't. Now, no, it the, didn't. <laughs> now they they realized that the, the, the uh, people in the Vatican realized that the um, it, as it were the doctrinal power of the old mass. In fact, I don't know if it was Monsignor Benelli who was the Secretary of State. I think he even told the Fever. Uh, that the um, uh, old mass represents an old ecclesiology, an old uh, theology of the church, you know, and the new mass represents a new ecclesiology. So uh, they knew uh, those in uh, in charge of the Vatican knew uh, very well the principle of lex orandi and lex credendi. The the problem is how do you authorize the um, uh, uh, traditional mass uh, if, if uh, you know, it represents a different theology. And the, the way that they did it is by making it purely a matter of, of, of preference, trying to um, say that it's sim- that you have to accept, uh, and they said that specifically in the document in 84, the doctrinal rectitude uh, and uh, uh, of the new mass that there was nothing wrong with it. Uh, and uh, that on uh, uh, one side. On the other side, uh, they sought to reduce it simply to aesthetics or to a preference uh, sentiment and tried to, um, uh, you know, sort of defang the problem of uh, the new worship that way, because they knew very well that the hardline traditionalists uh, regarded the uh, mass as a threat to the Catholic faith. You know, you had Lefebvre saying that. Uh, you had countless other uh, traditionalist priests throughout the world saying that as well, that it's modernist or it's Protestant. It's the mass of Luther, and it represents a different doctrine. So uh, the Vatican wanted to make 
get uh, make things nice and, and and vague and blurry and just reduce it to options and and preference that you know you like this stuff so you can have it. Mm-hmm. So so essentially, while we have a traditionalist resistance which is beginning to gain more and more steam, uh, we also have a novus ordo. Uh, structure where the novus ordo mass is getting more and more and more crazy as the years go along i mean i mm-hmm. uh, you know i'm a product of the 1980s and i can tell you for you know, for sure and not to get into too many of my own war stories but uh, certainly i was uh, you know subject to being able to sit through the pleasure of magic act masses around the table and you know all these other horrible things um but i i, you know, I think so, so so there were there were two there were two diverging paths now let me get a little bit into it, and I don't want to spend a whole lot on this because, yeah, I think it's it, um, it's certainly a point of reference, but we've done other shows on this, and I don't want to get sidetracked. But So we moved past the 84 indult. The next major act that I would say was, uh, uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, was the 88 consecration of the four bishops of the Society of St. Pius X by Archbishop Lefebvre. Um, mm-hmm. Now, how, how did that change the traditionalist resistance uh, at that time, what, what was the reaction from that, and what was uh, did the did the Vatican come down hard on the traditionalist movement after that? I mean, certainly you had the '88 indult, which is which is what I want to get to, and because, which is kind of an extension of the '84. So, could you talk oh, sure, about that sure. a little bit? Well, what happened is uh, the uh, there was actually an internal division in the Society of St. Pius X over whether or not one should, whether or not Lefebvre should consecrate bishops. So uh, the, uh, there were those in the uh, Pius X Society who uh, were absolutely opposed to this because they thought, oh, well, it's the Holy Father. You can't go against the Holy Father. Um, we do believe he is the true pope. Uh, we have to recognize his legitimacy and so on. So uh, the uh, 88 Lefebvre went, uh, after going back and forth uh, over the issue, and, and, um, uh, as he tended to do, uh, he went ahead and he consecrated the bishop. So the Vatican then uh, decided that uh, they would try to uh, get into uh, their particular fold the uh, uh, trads in the Society of St. Pius X circles, either priests or, or laymen who disagreed with Archbishop Lefebvre's decision. So they, um, uh, to do that, they uh, figured out a way to set up a legal structure for um, priests who wanted to um, uh, wanted to be part of the Vatican II establishment, but say the old mass. So the the result of this was the fraternity of Saint Peter. This was um, uh, founded by a group of former priests of the Society of Saint Pius X, including a classmate of mine, Father Joseph Bisik. Um, and uh, he was the, the first superior, uh, first superior general of the fraternity of Saint Peter. They put together proposed statutes, and they received uh, approval for their organization. And their particular apostolate, I guess, was supposed to be to carry on the uh, tradition, traditional mass. Okay. Under the the All ages right. of the um, 
uh, post-conciliar church. And there were a number of other groups like that uh, that um, came out of the 88 consecrations, people who did not want to uh, uh, go along with what Archbishop Lefebvre did. So they were accommodated. Okay, so so now kind of moving into more of the book and, and, and speaking about you know the Mass itself, you quote Archbishop Fernando Antonelli when he made a statement, and I believe this was in 69, about what the Mass is. And, and that you quoted him with the, with the statement that every word and gesture in the liturgy conveys a theological idea. Now, this certainly is... I would say this is a foundational argument of the traditionalist movement. Why is it so critical for Catholics to realize what that means when comparing the new with the old? I mean, what would what would you say is a real take-home keystone point in that statement to those who may be trapped in the Novus Ordo, scandalized by what they see, and understand that what they're watching is conveying words and gestures, or, or actually, excuse me, the words and gestures that they're observing convey a theological idea. Well, the uh, that that in itself is 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 the, the heart of the issue, the heart of the problem with the new mass. That uh, it conveys a different theology, a different understanding of the mass, a, a different doctrine on so many other points than the traditional mass does. So there's 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 a divide. There's a real difference between the um, uh, what we could call the traditional mass and the new mass. Even the new mass celebrated in Latin. Now I uh, assisted at that, celebrated in Latin every day for two years with all sorts of Gregorian chant. But there there is a theological difference. The um, uh, what the post-Vatican to church would like one to do is to reduce the differences to mere preference and uh, and aesthetics or sentimentality that you like fancy ceremonies uh, you are uh, attached to an old form of spirituality uh, allowing you to have that it's just part of diversity um, and uh, we all really should get along there's no uh, theological difference but that's false that's a that's a false impression. It reduces the um, uh, mass to uh, the difference to simple exercise in nostalgia, where there's a real theological difference. And the the interesting thing is that um, you know the the, the uh, I had a discussion a number of years ago some some priests from the um, Fraternity of St. Peter uh, came through town with um, uh, one of whom I, I knew and then uh, some of their seminarians, and, and we had a discussion about this. I uh, really couldn't get out of them why in the world it, it was so important to say the, um, uh, the old or the Trinitan Mass rather than the new Mass. All they would say is, well, it's our terrorism, it's our kind of way of doing things. But, uh, you know, I, I think under the surface is the idea that there's a realization that there is a theological difference. It's just that they don't want to admit it. Yes. You know, the new mass is uh, harmful. You know? Sure. And I think um, there's another statement that you make in, in Chapter 1 is you say when – so when you say that you have let's, – let's just say for a second that 
your preference matters. But when you're saying that you have a preference for the old mass, what you're also saying in that statement is that the new mass doesn't provide the preferences, you know, that it, that it doesn't provide what the old mass did, that, that it's a clear deviation from the old mass. And that, that point kind of hit home with me. I never really looked at it in that sense, but, it, you know, there's also that there, there's that catch, there's, there's that trap that should make people think when they say, oh, well, you know, I like the old mass better. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's something yep. missing, and that's the uh, that's uh, that's the point. That indeed, there's not just something, but there's a lot of stuff missing, sure. and uh, sure. as a result, there are a lot of bad effects. Sure. So I think I think the next uh, you know, the next milestone here would be the election of uh, Joseph Ratzinger, you know, Father Ratzinger, who who mm-hmm. uh, in 2005, after after John Paul II died. And we had the election, and of course there was kind of a little bit of shock waves down the corridors of power in Rome, thinking that he was going to be this this, you know, this very staunch conservative candidate who was going to take us all back to the pre-Vatican two days, and on and on and on. And so in uh, in 2007, he issued a motu proprio called Summorum Pontificum. Now. This supposedly, quote-unquote, freed the old mass, where it could be said any time, anywhere, by any priest, without permission of the local bishop. And um, So my, my first question, which comes from this point, is, was the 2007 motu proprio a logical outgrowth of the 84 indult? Well, um, the... Uh in terms of logic, I mean, certain things defy logic. Uh, mm-hmm. But the, I would back, I, I would give this um, uh, perspective on that, that, that as a result of the greater visibility of uh, the old mass due to the, the indult and then to these, these groups such as the uh, Fraternity of St. Peter, uh, there arose among the uh, younger clergy, uh, sort of the, uh, uh, the the new generation of clergy, an interest in traditional liturgy and initial circles of the new mass. Uh, and this was something that uh, you know was um, uh, very interesting. You would have never heard that sort of criticism uh, from mainline clergy in the 1970s. That's absolutely for sure. But by the mid and late 90s, you started to hear that. And, and Ratzinger was leading the cheering section for that on the uh, basis of the idea of, of preference and liking nice things in the past. He's, he's a very refined guy, uh, unlike his, his predecessor and unlike his successor. And uh, he appreciated fine things, and um, he, you know, was was pained when things were ugly at mass. So, in any event, his um, uh, he uh, finally, after his his uh, election with the Summorum Pontificum, he was able to um, put some of his uh, ideas and preferences into practice. Uh, and this is this has been bubbling for a while. You know, and uh, so I guess you could say that it did s- sort of start in in '84. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so, would you say that the 2007 motu proprio was a distraction rather than a solution? Well, I mean, um, in what sense do you mean that? That, that a distraction from the big issue? 
Yes, correct. You, you know, the distraction from the doctrinal problems rather than the aesthetic ones. You know, they, oh, well, they continue. Yeah, because they, they um, uh, their statement after statement, um, uh, consistently all the way from '84 onward, from uh, you know different officials in the Vatican, from JP2, and uh, also actually from Ratzinger himself, and in Samorum Pontificum. Uh, in, in both the letter to bi- the bishops and in the motu proprio itself, that to make it clear that all this is, is is aesthetics, and it's all just a question of preference. So they kept on hammering, uh, hammering that idea that it's just a question of preference. That that's their their message. Uh, okay. So when you frame it uh, in those terms, you um, uh, cut it off from the idea of, of uh, a theological foundation. And if something is preference, you can have your preference, I can have my preference, and uh, all of this is supposed to be tolerable. So they try to to uh, blur, as it were, the um, uh, blur the problem as, as, uh, as much as they can. So they were very consistent on that line, that it's, it simply is... A, um, it simply is a question of preference. Uh, you know, Father, there's, you did a sermon, or uh, you 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 gave a sermon a while back, and we we linked to it in in our um, RestorationRadioNetwork.com show notes, and it was a sermon that was entitled "The Motu Mass: Benefits and Dangers," and mm-hmm. this I'm linking this to the question of of. Um, has there been any good which has come from the 2000 modus, uh, the 2007 motu proprio? Uh, and I found something interesting in that sermon where you said that it will hasten the destruction of the Novus Ordo Mass and the Novus Ordo Church. Can you, can you explain that? Well, uh, because in a real way, it puts before your eyes the differences between the old and the new. And it's it's very strange. It's one thing to read about the traditional mass uh, <coughs> vis-a-vis the new mass in a book, and it's another thing actually to see them. Uh, I was talking with uh, a fellow today who was um, uh, who's been uh, agonizing over these questions, over these different issues, and he has a grandson who uh, thought he might be uh, interested in the priesthood and going to the seminary, and so he went with, with Grandpa to an indult mass uh, that was um, uh, celebrated in some diocesan church, and he was bowled over by it, you know, because he, he mentally compared it to the Silver Sordo. So it, it, it's had uh, that effect that people see that there are problems with it. Uh, there, there, there are real problems with the Novus Ordo, and, and as the years go on, it becomes more and more undefensible. And, uh, indefensible if you're truly concerned about the truths of the Catholic faith, you know, and, and if you're not in denial, as they would say, about the bad effects of Vatican II and the bad effects of the Novus Ordo. There's another thing. Uh, there's another point that um, that you had made uh, in Chapter One where. You were saying that there are really incredible parallels between Anglican high churchism and the motu, and the motu proprio groups today, and by that we would mean those that go to the diocesan Latin mass, the fraternity of St. Peter, the Institute of Christ the King, um, that, that 
you know, really the aim of Ratzinger was to try to have kind of a, a high church and a low church. If you wanted, uh, you know, mm-hmm. if you wanted frog masses and clown masses, you could go to the Novus Ordo. And if you wanted your nice smells and bells and pretty trappings and frippery, well, we're we're going to give you you know the Latin mass as well. So, can uh, how how is high church Anglicanism and the the motu proprio groups today? How are they strikingly alike? Well, uh, first of all, we'd have to kind of explain things for people who aren't familiar with the term, I guess, high church. Uh, sure. In the, uh, the Church of England, or the uh, Episcopal Church, there are uh, fundamentally three different strains of, of uh, worship and uh, belief and of ideology. And they, they uh, overlap, but they're all part of the same organization. Uh, one would be what is called the low church. Uh, these are the people who believe in um, uh, uh, more uh, Protestant evangelical type ceremonies that are going much for um, uh, elaborate symbolism and worship. They're against, you know, the uh, referring to their services as the mass. So you you have had that group. And then you had the high church, and the high church wing of the Anglican started uh, around the 1840s uh, with uh, the uh, with what was called the Oxford Movement. Many of the uh, lights of the Oxford Movement actually ended up as Catholics, but the idea was that, well, we were going to dress up uh, the Anglican um, uh, rites, the Anglican Communion Service and the Anglican uh, Vespers, in effect, even song, with uh, Catholic externals different Catholic externals. So uh, that is referred to as the high church movement because they had a lot of, of uh, 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 ceremonial, a lot of ceremonial. And there was, there's a group in the middle that was called the broad church. Uh, these would were people who could take a little bit of either. Now the interesting thing is, is that you, was that you had these three different um, uh, strains in the Anglican Church uh, were, uh, who had these different forms of worship. They were part of the same organization. Um, they recognized each other as legitimate, uh, but there, there, were no, there was no central uh, body of doctrine to which they actually were required to um, subscribe. So it, it became a, a, a sort of doctrine uh, doctrine-free worship, as it were. And you had many in the, eventually, in the high church movement, the Anglicans, uh, people who loved uh, these fancy ceremonials so much that they actually adopted uh, practices from the, the Catholic Mass for high mass and all sorts of Catholic ritual. But at the same time, it was, uh, uh, there was no uh, a real doctrinal um, meat behind it that uh, uh, you could believe very little or nothing and conduct these very fancy, these uh, elaborate uh, services. So there's this, this bifurcation between, uh, actually between doctrine and worship. It didn't really matter ultimately what you believed, but you had a preference for fancier worship. So that's a high church movement. Now, if we take that back and um, apply it to uh, this particular situation, you know, the, the approved um, uh, 
uh, modal proprio masses that are said within the uh, context of the new church, what you have is, in effect, you have a high church movement. You have people very much who um, uh, are uh, repelled by the new way of worship. They don't like the, the uh, more... Um, uh, Protestant uh, Protestant form of worship that the new mass represents, and they want to uh, have something that is somehow connected with the past, uh, that represents uh, you know Catholic tradition and aesthetics and so on, and so they uh, adhere they, they uh, adhere to the uh, form of the traditional Latin Mass that's done under the aegis of the diocese. And they kind of don't look beyond that at the larger doctrinal picture. Many of them, okay. You'll have some, uh, uh, perhaps a, a number of people, good number of people, who will go to uh, one of these approved Masses saying that, well, they, they really can't stand the new Mass at all and they don't approve of what's going in the, on in the Vatican II Church and they just look upon this as a refuge. So you have that too. But it's all a, um, at the, the base of it, there's no doctrinal resistance really to the heirs um, uh, of the modern church. The, the, yeah, the doctrine the is left out. Right. You know, living in the South, um, you know, driving by you know, many Protestant churches around here, this, this, this whole idea of high church versus low church, it, it, it's such a common thread you'll see on marquees, you know, traditional service, 7 a.m., contemporary service, 10.30 a.m. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, this seems to, and this seems to kind of be um, you know, Ratzinger's model. For those of you just joining us, you, it's just after the top of the hour, 8 o'clock here Eastern Time. You're listening to the work of Human Hands on Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Justin Soder, and I'm joined this evening by Father Anthony Chicada, who is discussing Chapter 1 of his book, uh, Work of Human Hands. And we're about to close out Chapter 1, and I want to give Father this, this last point here is really the meat of the matter in Chapter 1, which we've been trying to discuss when we talk about the high church versus low church argument, is the emphasis in Chapter 1 is that we must understand that the question of the Mass is not about preference but doctrine. So, Father, I'll let you, I'll let you close out Chapter 1, and we'll move on to Chapter 2 with your final thoughts on preference versus doctrine. Well, uh, that for me has always been the issue, and that was the uh, issue from the beginning with, um, uh, in the, the so-called traditionalist movement, that the law of praying is the law of believing, and the uh, effect of the new mass is that um, it uh, affects what Catholics believe. It um, um, harms the Catholic faith and has harmed the Catholic faith and the souls of so many as regards the question of the real presence of, of Christ, the, um, the question of who actually offers uh, the Mass, what takes place at Mass as a, uh, a real and a true propitiatory sacrifice offered for sins. And uh, the, the, the new Mass uh, affects, uh, in a deleterious way, all of those uh, beliefs. So the, the heart of the difference the, the, the reason for the battle for the uh, traditional mass and the battle for the destruction 
of the new mass, and it deserves to be destroyed, is the question of Catholic doctrine and also the, the question of, of fundamental reverence in the way of worship. Okay. This is a good time to move on to Chapter 2. We'd like to remind listeners if they want to call in to speak with Father, uh, you can call at 949-272-9417. We'd like to ask you to please keep your questions on topic for the things we're discussing here this evening. If you have any questions that we can take off there, you can feel free to mail us at um, humanhands at truerestoration.org, and we'll be sure to get your question on to Father. All right, so Father, moving on to Chapter 2, which is entitled The Change Agents, uh, reading this chapter, it almost reads like you know, the report of a murder case. I mean, you, know, you lay out the, the, the names, the places, the times, the beliefs. Uh, it's really a, a foundational chapter for the reader to get an understanding of who the players behind the scenes were. You lay out the root of the liturgical revolution, um, which operated under the title of the liturgical movement. Of course, the movement started off with noble intentions, and of course was later on hijacked. So I'd like for you to briefly discuss in broad terms, uh, and we don't have to spend a lot of time on this because obviously we want the we want the reader or uh, uh, the listener to read the book. What exactly the liturgical movement was, as it was envisaged by Dom Garanger, and what it became in the middle of the 20th century? How did it get hijacked? Okay, and we should explain. Dom Garanger was the uh, was a, a French priest who refounded the Benedictine order in France, which had been suppressed during the Revolution. And he saw it as very important to restore the Catholic liturgy. Because of the wars and revolutions in um, Europe, the uh, practice of uh, the, the correct performance and the correct understanding of the Catholic liturgy um, was had, had really gone downhill. So it was his idea to uh, achieve a restoration of the uh, Catholic liturgy. So that's if, essentially is it, the liturgical movement, you could say, it was a, a movement among Catholics, um, clergy and lay for the uh, restoration of the Catholic liturgy in all its fullness. Uh, and it had very good and very noble beginnings in Dom uh, Garanger. Um, it um, really received a, an impetus from Pope St. Pius X, who um, was uh, very concerned about liturgical issues, liturgical questions. He um, reformed the calendar, the um, breviary. He um, uh, uh, cultivated Catholic church music. He commissioned uh, the redoing, as it were, of uh, uh, new editions of uh, Gregorian chant. So that it, it, it bore really um, uh, tremendous fruit at this point. Unfortunately, at, at uh, the same time, uh, you know, toward the beginning of the 20th century, you saw the rise of uh, modernism, which we've discussed in other shows, which was a uh, movement based in modern philosophy and uh, uh, modern thought, essentially atheist, uh, atheistic modern philosophy and atheistic modern thought. Uh, and the idea of modernism in religion was to make an accommodation with uh, uh, an accommodation of religion uh, specifically the Catholic faith with the ideas of, of uh, modern uh, uh, modern society and uh, modern philosophy and this this as a theological movement was condemned by Pope uh, St. Pius X is um, in Pescendi uh, 
and he uncovered, as it were, the, the, the roots of the uh, modernist errors. So uh, at uh, this point, we get a... Um, uh, we begin to see in the history of the liturgy that the uh, those who held suspect ideas on um, theological questions that a number of them went into the um, uh, went into the field of sacred liturgy, and here's where the problems start to begin. Right. So then we move on um, to. Uh to about 1947, whenever Pope Pius XII had to step in, and he issued two keynote encyclicals, uh, Mediator Dei and Mystici Corporis, and to clearly state and definitively reaffirm Catholic doctrine on the nature of the Church and sacred liturgy. Now, you know, my question is, why did uh, Pius XII have to step in and issue these two encyclicals? I mean, certainly, um, he saw something. What was the reasoning for this? Well, um, because of the uh, infiltration, as it were, of the, the, the uh, modernists into the liturgical movement, there is a, a wing of the uh, liturgical movement that um, uh, proposed not only changes in, in uh, the manner of the celebration of the sacred liturgy, uh, but uh, also uh, proposed uh, different theological ideas about the nature of the church. Uh, Pius XII received a, um, uh, actually a warning on this from uh, the Bishop of Regensburg in Bavaria, uh, Bishop Grober, and I think it was about 1941, and he sent a memorandum to uh, Pius XII, and I remember when I first saw this, it was really uh, bowled over <coughs> because what he was complaining about, uh, <coughs> excuse me, what Bishop Grober in effect was complaining about was the uh, same sort of um, uh, false ideas that had come to take over the liturgy and certain areas of theology after Vatican II. And it was really striking to see something like this uh, you know, uh, uh, 20 years before Vatican II happened. So Pius XII um, yeah, received this um, uh, this warning, uh, this memorandum from uh, Grover, and he um, eventually produced two encyclicals. One was on the nature of the Church, Mystici Corporis. This um, was in uh, response to some of the theological errors that people in the liturgical movement were spreading about the nature of the church. So uh, that was one, um, the, the, the uh, in effect, origin for that document was, in fact, the errors of the liturgical movement. And secondly, uh, Mediator Dei, which is his great uh, encyclical on the sacred liturgy, and it's pro probably the longest encyclical, longest document ever to uh, uh, you know come out of the Vatican, where he lays out all the general principles of the Catholic liturgy and the sacrificial nature of the Mass, the relation be relationship between doctrine and um, uh, doctrine and liturgy. He condemns different abuses. Um, uh, so he lays everything out in Mediator Day. Um, what he tried to do, what the historians say he tried to do, was to say that, okay, there was a lot of good in the liturgical movement, 
and now I'm going to take that under my thumb, or I'm going to take that in hand, and we're going to sort of take it upstairs and keep an eye on it from Rome, okay? So, mm-hmm. so the, the uh, that I think was was basically his idea. Uh, there still were good strains in the liturgical movement uh, at that point, and so he was trying to um, uh, get it under proper authority and regulate it. Okay. You know, this is a question that has always kind of puzzled me, and and I'd like you know your opinion on this, and then I'll follow it up with something else here that that directly relates to it. Never understood why Pius the Twelfth who obviously knew that many of these men were up to no good, I mean, as evidenced by his issuance of the aforementioned encyclicals, why did he stop there and not begin removing them compared to, say, a, you know, a St. Pius X, who have certainly removed them, probably defrocked them and, and cast them away? Why was, why was Pius XII seemingly very soft on these individuals? I mean, he had to know, uh, issuing those two encyclicals, why he was issuing them. So why did he leave these men in power? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, the, um, you know, sort of a question of a, 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 um, a character insufficiently uh, strong resolution uh, to, uh, you know, be tough with the people who were really and truly the partisans of error. I think it was it was his uh, uh, perhaps his his personality. He was on the the theoretical level. I mean, he certainly laid out all the principles, but he didn't uh, really uh, have uh, the guts to carry all of them through. He knew, for instance, that um, uh, Montini was a bad guy, and that Montini was a a modern sympathizer, but uh, instead of taking a definitive action with Montini and, you know, making him uh, like an Italian army chaplain or something like that, uh, he made him Archbishop of Milan. And um, so it's it's extremely mysterious. He didn't have the, I think, the forceful type of, of, of personality and resolution uh, to really crack heads. Mm. I think it's just a, just a small note for our listeners. When, when Father says uh, Montini, he is speaking of Giovanni Montini, who was the Archbishop of Milan, uh, which began in 54, but he also was later Paul VI. So I think that's uh, just, a, just a quick little reference there. Uh, Father, do you think traditional, traditional Catholics sort of romanticize the pontificate of Pius XII to an unbalanced degree? I mean, are they objectively fair when evaluating his pontificate? Well, I mean, it's, uh, those of us who remember it, you know, remember the things where the, the, the church was a flourishing institution then. It was a respected sure. institution. I always talk about the, uh, you know, as a, uh, a kid going to the minor seminary for the first day and looking up the driveway of the major seminary next door and seeing, uh, you know, 250 guys in cassocks out for their morning walk. You know, so this was, these were flourishing institutions. And, uh, you know, of course, there is that, that romance that um, surrounds Pius the Twelfth. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, you have to be uh, realistic in the sense that, uh, unfortunately, he let a lot of things go. And sure. um, uh, it, uh, the things that he did, a number of things that he did were actually quite, uh, uh, quite ineffectual. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an interview done with Bishop Sanborn and Stephen Heiner called The Pendulating Papacy, where Bishop Sanborn um, says uh, he, he recalled the conversation that he had with um, 
uh, Archbishop Lefebvre and asked him, well, you know, Your Excellency, why, why, you know, why was it seemingly that as soon as the death of Pius XII, we immediately had John XXIII, we immediately had this entire machine that was ready to go in action. How was that possible? And Bishop Sanborn said that uh, Archbishop Lefebvre responded back, and he said, well, they were all there. I mean, these, these were Pius XII's men. I mean, you, know, you have to lay that at his feet. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, being fair, these were his men. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, I, so, uh, you know, with uh, with uh, uh, with few exceptions. When you look, when you read uh, the book, for instance, the Rhine flows into the Tiber, uh, which I was uh, actually recommended to someone today by this Father Ralph Wilkin. Um, it, um, you know, these were Pius the Twelfth's men. Uh, that mm-hmm. the 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 the, uh, uh, the bad guys in uh, in Europe that he just left in in positions, not I guess not wanting to uh, uh, not really wanting to crack heads. Pius X was a headcracker. No, that's the uh, that's the difference. When people would tell me too about you know JP two, you know our beloved Holy Father, he doesn't uh, uh, take any action with these different uh, priests because he feels that he can. I mean, if you look at Pius X, he cracked heads. He he removed people. Uh, he instituted oaths. Uh, he fired the whole faculty of uh, Dunwoody Seminary, the Archdiocesan Seminary in New York, by telegraph. And he, um, <laughs> I've he, heard the story is good. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's absolutely terrific. I mean, uh, yeah, and, and because the Dunwoody in in the early 1900s, they had a publication that was modern, sympathetic to, and they had the seminarians, believe it or not, going to lectures from a Protestant minister down at so, so, uh, some divinity school. So uh, that uh, you know, there's no question about. Uh, letting that go, so he fired everyone by telegram. Uh, he, uh, when he had the Archbishop of New York in uh, for an unlimited visit, he screamed at him, and the guy came out with his, his cape all askew, and he made the uh, installed as rector of the seminary uh, to replace the modernist, the former chaplain to the uh, New York City Police Department. You know, I, I guess just so people would get the message. You know, and this was before, uh, you know, Twitter and Facebook, you know. Um, uh, so the thing is that, that uh, you, uh, when you hear something about uh, one of the modernists like J.P. Tour, you hear it about Pius XII, uh, you say that these, these people could have um, uh, really cracked heads if they'd wanted to. Certainly. Okay. Well, for those, you, yeah. So for those of you who are just joining us, it's it's, uh, it's about 20 after the top of the hour, and we're we're trying to wind down chapter two here. You're listening to the work of Human Hands on the Restoration Radio Network with Father Anthony Chicada, who is giving us, uh, you know, a much deeper and more personal insight into his book. Father, I think there's no way that we can close out Chapter 2 without discussing two names here real quick. We don't have to go into a very long discussion about this, but uh, um, Louis Boyer and Josef Jungmann, uh, mm-hmm. who were both uh, very, very much foundational, instrumental modernists who 
uh, were dead set on changing the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. And you mentioned two two main theories of uh, Joseph Jungmann. You might briefly just explain who he was, uh, and then the two theories he espoused, the corruption theory and the pastoral liturgy theory. And uh, pastoral being a buzzword that we all hear all the time. I mean, going back to the Novus Ordo, I used to hear uh, pastoral, pastoral, pastoral constantly. That was that was supposedly the framework to which I was to understand you know, the Catholic Church. So, and that and that all originated essentially at one point. Can you can you kind of go into Jungmann and Boyer a little bit? Yes, Jungmann was an Austrian Jesuit. Uh, and scholar of the sacred liturgy, and he wrote a uh, book when uh, he was a convent chaplain during the Second World War uh, called The Mass of the Roman Rite, a, a two-volume um, work. And uh, a lot of scholarship uh, you know, went into it, consulted a lot of original sources uh, and so on. Uh, he had, and he had um, written many, many uh, articles for the liturgical movement, uh, for liturgical movement publications, um, he had uh, he was tremendously influential. Uh, he was even admired. Both he and Bouillet were even admired by uh, post-Vatican II conservatives. Um, uh, you know, very very much for for their work. So they they, they had this this uh, aura, this reputation. Uh, but in the case of of uh, Jungmann, he had the uh, what comes through in his writings, and I show this in the book, is, is uh, what's called the corruption theory, that basically he believed that after the uh, primitive ages, the church's liturgy became corrupt, uh, that uh, in response to having to drive off different heresies like Arianism, uh, that uh, the, the uh, popular participation stopped. This was a really bad thing. There was a barrier between God uh, uh, God and the people, uh, that uh, worship became sort of privatized. And so basically everything went downhill from the 6th century in the Catholic liturgy. It was corrupt. And uh, so that was, was one idea. And when you read this, uh, if you're familiar with how the liturgy goes in the, uh, the liturgical developments after Vatican II, you can see that his, his, his argument all the time is against the current, against the traditional liturgy. So that comes out. I remember noticing that when I was preparing a, a course to teach uh, at uh, the uh, seminary my first year as a priest. And it had the same, even though it was pre-Vatican II, it had the same aura uh, that writers after Vatican II uh, would have. So that's his, his corruption theory, uh, where the traditional liturgy was corrupt. The other uh, idea was his pastoral liturgy theory, that the, he had this idea that in primitive ages, everything uh, was accommodated to the pastoral needs of the people, so that you have to make liturgy comprehensible, and you have to uh, uh, draw the uh, people in, that this is the, the true form of uh, participation. The liturgy is supposed to be, is supposed to form people almost like a classroom. And then, of course, well, how can you do that if uh, it's in Latin? And so he, would, he talked about Latin as, as this veil that covers the sacred liturgy that prevents people from getting involved. So he's tremendously influ influential. 
that that the pastoral idea is that well everything has to be accommodated to the people the lowest common denominator and the corruption that the traditional theory is um, the traditional liturgy is is uh, somehow bad and corrupt that's young one uh, the other one is is uh, uh, Louis Bouillet, and he's um, was uh, a convert from Protestantism, a Frenchman. He wrote a book called uh, Liturgical Piety, and actually it was a series of, of um, uh, lectures that he gave at Notre Dame, Indiana in 1954. And he had uh, just about nothing with the sacred liturgy as it stood was right with him. He condemned the medieval period. He condemned the Baroque period, uh, you know, the Counter-Reformation period. He condemned the time of Granger. Um, he uh, had the idea that the uh, what the liturgy should uh, what the liturgy should do is de-emphasize the idea of sacrifice and de-emphasize the idea of the real presence of Christ uh, in the Mass, and uh, emphasize instead the idea of the assembled people, the Jewish idea uh, of the Kahal Yahweh, uh, the uh, assembled people of God. And uh, so he was a, a particularly uh, bitter critic of the traditional liturgy. Even in 1954, he hated Thomism, uh, and the traditional theological system, as it were, the Catholic Church. So both of these guys, their ideas had a tremendous influence on uh, the new Mass. Uh, Jungmann was part of the commission in the 1960s that actually put together the new Mass, as was Louis Bouillet. Uh, and the um, uh, between them, they, they wielded an enormous, uh, really an enormous influence on the development of the new right. They were a um, uh, influence on Paul VI and Montini before the Second Vatican Council. Uh, he quoted them very favorably when he was Archbishop of Milan, and, and these were the people that he brought in when uh, they wanted to dynamite the Mass. So that's that's the, the two big characters are Jungmann and Bouillet. Father, uh, you mentioned uh, Thomism and uh, what may also be referred to as um, neo-scholasticism. What is it that the modernists cannot stand about St. Thomas Aquinas? <laughs> it's clear. <laughs> it defines you get. Um, uh, propositions, you know, the uh, the uh, theological language is uh, things can be summed up very, very succinctly and very clearly, and that's what good theology is supposed to do. And the the um, uh, uh, neo-scholasticism or, or uh, Thomism uh, is. Um, uh, uh, you know, it's excellent at that, that they give you a proposition at the beginning of w what they're going to prove. They define all the terms. They show all the proofs for the arguments and so on, and you can follow it rationally. Um, but the modernists don't like that because it's clear. And uh, it shows Catholic doctrine very, very clearly. It tells you what... Um, uh, uh, tells you sort of where everything is supposed to be situated. Because the modernists believe in a uh, evolution of doctrine, uh, and uh, believe instead that that dogmas uh, sort of arise from within, and 
within different people and, and sort of coalesce, and that's how you get uh, dogma rather than coming from without, coming from divine revelation. So they don't like things too clear. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they uh, hate it. <laughs> yeah. There's one thing about uh, Louis Bouillet that, that I think uh, really really jumped out at me whenever I was reading this this chapter was that if you if you read much of his writings it's almost like reading a preference uh, excuse me a preface to um, uh, the document uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium of Vatican II I mean this this you know the need for the restoration of rights the return to the primitive church uh, this is I mean this was almost you know the, the, the you have a foundational text there. You can see it all throughout that uh, all throughout that document. So, I mean, obviously they were they were thoroughly imbibing in the uh, in the modernist theology uh, that, that you know he was espousing. So, uh, one last point that I'd like to bring up, and we can't get around this because we talked about Montini, and this this comes towards the close of chapter two, where where you quoted. Uh, one of the things he said was that he had the belief that the, quote, church must transform the difficulties posed by her liturgical rights, unquote. Now, certainly that kind of harkens right back to Boyer. And I think this is the key to understanding the underpinnings of the creation of the Novus Ordo. Why? What difficulties was Montini veiling in that 1958 pastoral letter? What were the difficulties, Father? Well, the... the idea there was that you had a uh, that you had the mass in Latin, and that that impeded instruction because you have a, a, a an idea of the mass as an instruction session. So that has to go. The uh, rites are complicated. Uh, uh, rites are complicated and mystical. These are hard to explain to people. So everything has to be. Uh, simplified and watered down and brought down to a lower level, uh, that uh, many of the, uh, thirdly, you could say that uh, many of the rites seem uh, arcane and uh, alien to uh, so-called modern man and modern secular society, so these have to be uh, downgraded. So there's a whole array of different things that he saw as, uh, that he saw as problematic. Okay. Well, Father, I think this is a good place to close Chapter 2, and I'm going to give you just a you know, brief minute here you know, for you to express your thoughts on Chapter 2 and what you want the listener to understand. Um, certainly the, the title of, this, of the, the, uh, the second chapter being the change agents and the definition of the liturgical movement, um, yeah, I think this illustrates that all of these men who you, um, you outline and you identified, they were devout disciples of the modernism, combi- uh, uh, not combined, excuse me, condemned by St. Pius X just 50 years prior. Uh, that, that's really what, what struck me. And I'd like just for you to go ahead and put an end to Chapter 2 here for our listener and, and uh, what you would like them to take home. Well, I, I would say this. The uh, inclination when you hear a statement like that from some, someone like me, okay, the evil Father Chicada, is that, the, uh, well, this, this is something that is, is exaggerated, okay, that uh, we're, we're, um, these hard-headed trans are just sort of making this up now and trying to put a label on it. But in fact, in point of fact, if you look at the sources before Vatican II, um, here's what you find. In the... Um, 
uh, on the theological plane, there is a, this, uh, a group of theologians called uh, uh, Le Nouvelle Theologie, the, the um, New Theology. And um, they were the, the prime movers of uh, so much of Vatican II, at the Second Vatican Council. Uh, Yves Congars, uh, 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 Skillebex, Karl Rahner, uh, the, the, uh, the, there's a whole, um, whole load of them that were extremely influential in Vatican II. They were suspects before Vatican II, uh, and now the scholars, uh, mainline scholars, uh, refer to these people as, as the inheritors of modernism and uh, as the, the precursors to the Second Vatican Council. So now in mainstream theological writing, uh, there seemed to be very clearly a connection between uh, uh, the modernists and uh, the classical modernists of the time of Pius X and the um, uh, theologians of, of, of Vatican II. So that's an accepted idea in uh, an analysis generally of, of the men who had theological um, influence at Vatican II. Uh, specifically on the question of sacred liturgy, um, don't just take my word for it that it was a question of a modernist influence in the liturgical movement as a lead-up to the Second Vatican Council. I quote uh, one author in my book, a man named Ernest Conacher, who is a Lutheran and who wrote a very interesting book on the uh, liturgical movement, Catholic liturgical movement from a liturgical or from a Lutheran perspective. And um, he thought that the liturgical movement was uh, just absolutely great, um, what was being accomplished. And he said in, a, in 54 or 55 that the, um, the liturgical movement as it stood then were truly the inheritors of, of, of uh, modernism, that they um, were the ones who had, had taken up the flag for the modernist cause, what was considered heresy under Pius X, and uh, uh, brought it forward into the 1950s and would bring it into the future. So there's very clearly a connection on both levels and the level of theology in general and the liturgical movement uh, in particular. So um, that explains a lot. That explains a lot. The new mass and the changes in the liturgy did not come out of nowhere. They came out of modernism. Well, I think that's a great way to end, Father. And, and I, would, uh, I would encourage our listeners to go pick up a copy of this book and follow along as we, as we continue on this season. Um, you, can, um, uh, you can pick up a copy of that book, Work of Human Hands, at sggresources.org. And um, if you want to contact Father Chicada, his mailing address is uh, St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church, 4900 Rialto Road, that's R-I-A-L-T-O, Westchester, Ohio, 45069. If you have any questions you'd like to pass on to Father Chicada via email, you can mail us at humanhands at truerestoration.org. And I might also, uh, might also put a plug in here for Father's Father's ministry, they're always, in need to donate. they're always in need of donations, and we would like to encourage our listeners to be generous with their apostolate. They spend a lot of time with us on the air. We don't take this for granted. 
uh, Father is always, always very willing to come on and, and, and uh, you'll be a real trooper here to, to deal with a lot of questions and talk about a wide variety of topics. You'll be on next Thursday night with Bishop Sanborn for Francis Watch, which will be, I'm sure, a big marathon show since we haven't done a show with Francis since uh, October. So Father is giving a lot of his time to, to you, and uh, so we, we would ask that you would please consider making a donation. So. Father, uh, thank you so very much for your time here this evening, and uh, we'll be back on the air with you next month on uh, February the 20th. Thanks very much. God bless you all. all right. God Bye. bless. Bye-bye. I would close out by saying that we at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you or to your Catholic faith, that you would consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small it may be. To those of you who have donated to us, we want to extend a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to, love to hear from you. You can contact us at humanhands at truerestoration.org. If you'd like to reproduce our work, feel free to mail us at mail at truerestoration.org. So we'll close our show out with that, and we thank you for your time. And for the restoration, I am Justin Soder. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.